Guardian Unlimited. Hello and welcome along to Islamophonic. I'm Safraz Manzor, sitting in for Riyazat, who has the week off. Now, on the show this week, we're asking what seems the deceptively simple question. Why can't Muslims, Jews and Christians just get along? After all, all three religions believe in one God, they share many of the same traditions, and yet, despite all being children of Abraham, relations between Muslims, Jews and Christians aren't known for their harmony and coexistence. So why is that? And does it always have to be like that? That's what we're going to be chatting about, and with me to discuss it is Abdul Rahman Jaffa. He's a human rights barrister, as well as being a member of the Muslim Council of Britain. Now, Abdul Rahman, we were just saying about lots of cooperation and coexistence. As, as a Muslim yourself, as a Muslim barrister, is your social circle mostly Muslims? No, I've got uh, Jews, Christians, Hindu, Sikhs, uh, all British citizens as as, as Well, present and correct. Yeah. So you think the idea of communities and people of different religions mingling and getting along, you don't think that's a particularly unusual thing then? No, I think there are patterns of it around the country which have to be dealt with, which have to be addressed. But I don't think that we want to be that way. I think that there's a huge will out there and a recognition by peoples that we'd like to share and have more in common in our lives with people of other faiths and other cultures than at present. Okay, well, talking about sharing and communities reaching out, uh, Abdul Rahman was, like me, in North London last week to attend quite an unusual panel discussion organised by the Jewish Community Centre. The session was looking at what Muslims and Jews have in common, and that in itself is pretty rare. But what made the event particularly special was that a spokesperson from the Muslim Council of Britain, which famously boycotted National Holocaust Day, was addressing a Jewish audience for the first time. And before the discussion began, I asked a few of those who were attending why they went along. I can see lots of similarities between my religion and the you know, Judaic faith. But I think when politics come into it, that's where you know, all the problems start. And um, I'm just trying to figure out how can we work together. Are you hopeful? Very hopeful. I'm sure things will change. What's quite interesting is if you look around this room in terms of you know, the, the event, there aren't too many people with headscarves around. I've noticed that. I think it might be to do with mistrust. There's a lot of mistrust between you know, both communities. And um, I mean, even for me, I was a little bit terrified to come here at the beginning. Often people say that to be a Muslim, you know, the, it involves all sorts of different things. And part of it is, you know, having an inbuilt tension with Jews. Is that something like you felt yourself? Absolutely not. I mean, I would say that certainly my personal experience is that I feel that uh, Muslims probably have more in common with the Jewish community than, say, with the Christian community. We can share common humour, things about fasting, and also being possibly part of a minority faith group in the UK. Excellent. Good. Well, thank you all for coming on this horrible and uh, wintry evening. My name is Jonathan Friedland, and I want to start it off really with a single question. Just give us one thing that you feel these two communities do indeed have in common. And I'm going to start with you, David Cesarani. I think we share enemies. I think that we have uh, a common enemy, uh, principally on the far right... The rest of the panel followed David Cesarani in giving their suggestions for what Muslims and Jews shared. Inayat Banglawala from the Muslim Council of Britain claimed that the common heritage of the two faiths allowed him to take pride in Jewish achievements as if they were his own. When I look at Jewish people 
and Jewish achievements, in some way I regard it as my achievements. It's a bit arrogant of me, but I like looking at it that way, that this is really part of a common human endeavour. Also on the panel was Adrian Cohen, who chairs the London Jewish Forum, and who revealed that he and Anayat had actually attended the same secondary school in Ilford in London. Cohen argued that Muslims and Jews had a common belief in liberal democracy and self-determination, and it was this which united them. But this seemed to upset the columnist Yasmin Alabaya-Brown. I don't like the question. Sorry. I feel under immense pressure to produce beautiful words and thoughts. I feel uncomfortable when I'm asked to suggest that there is more in common between Jews and Muslims than there is, say, between Muslims and other groups. This idea of monotheism binding us also makes me uncomfortable, deeply uncomfortable. Those who do believe that much unites Jews and Muslims cite the fact that the three monotheistic religions share certain texts and traditions. But, according to David Cesarani, that is also the root cause of why they so often fail to get along. These are sacred texts, and if you are a believer, they are non-negotiable. And I think it's very difficult to, to seek commonalities on the basis of non-negotiable sacred texts. I did ask you all for one thing in common. I didn't, perhaps because it's obvious, ask you what divides us. In Ayat Bangalore, in your piece in the Jewish Chronicle, you said, and you dealt sort of head-on with Israel-Palestine and that conflict, but your approach to it was to say, look, we're going to have to agree to disagree, and if you like, put it to one side. Are you sure that's the right way rather than actually trying to tackle it? The feelings are so hot and so passionate about that conflict that people stop coming, you know, they actually take a dislike, <laughs> dislike and they don't want to get involved because the, the, the feelings are so, so strong. I just think there are so many other areas that we should concentrate on first and build up trust and respect, more importantly, before we tackle Israel-Palestine. Thank you. It's really clear. David Cesarani, is the central difficulty that both of these communities actually identify with the two peoples involved too much? I think it's wholly appropriate for, for Muslims in this country to feel passionately about the plight of Muslims all over the world. Quite clearly, <laughs> Israel-Palestine divides the two communities and to, and, and to an extent we are, we are you know, the victims of a conflict there and we can only work together to try and ameliorate the passions in that region and to bring the peoples there together. So that was an event at the Jewish Community Centre looking at the links between Muslims and Jews. Abdul Rahman Jaffa, you were there as well. It was a very theoretical discussion. It was about sacred text, it was about tradition, it was about history. But is there anything actually going on on the grassroots to try and bring communities and religions together? You're right. I think at the moment, the way things are, interfaith dialogue is a bit too theoretical and it's a bit too pie in the sky. But it's a step where we say, okay, let's go on a platform where we're able to put aside claims to absolute truths. And I think many of the world's problems, including what's going on in Israel and Palestine, is because people aren't able to put aside their claims to absolute truth. But I guess the, the question or the danger is that the, these kind of events, they kind of preach to the converted in a way, don't they? Sure, but I think it's, it, one shouldn't underestimate the... Look, actually, they, they follow patterns. After 9-11, there was almost a freezing of interfaith dialogue. And similarly, when Oslo peace accords break down, there's a kind of freezing... And so the more there is political dialogue, the more there is interfaith interaction as well. So why not work it the other way? Why not try and push interfaith more and let that take the lead? 
Okay, well, thanks. More from Abdul Rahman in a second. But one rather innovative example of grassroots efforts to bring Jews and Muslims together is Radio Salam Shalom. It calls itself the voice of the moderate majority, and it's an online radio station which broadcasts from Bristol and aims to focus on those aspects of Jewish and Muslim life that the two cultures share. Online around the world, 24 hours a day. This is Radio Salam Shalom. Broadcasting from Bristol, UK. Radio Salam Shalom is an internet-based radio station, so it's accessible worldwide. We have a global broadcast license. And currently, it's broadcasting six hours a day live with normally two sets of presenters in over the over the six-hour period. Well, Brendy, very interesting. I love the beat to it. <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> My children love it too. Some are Muslim, well, some are Jewish, child, some are... In their later part of life, our youngest broadcasters who are running their own show are 11 and 12, and are two brothers, Muslim brothers. Radio Salam Shalom. The song you were just listening to was actually For All These Times, Son, For All These Times. Quite a long title, isn't it, Hamza? Yeah, definitely. Now, we were talking about... We have... All kinds of programming. Some of it is music, some of it is speech, some of it is poetry, some of it is is a whole mix of art, science, you name it, we, we discuss it really. Thank you, Cathy. Well, that poem was by... Um, some of it is religiously based, there are some religious-based discussions, but generally it's what people want to talk about. Muslim-Jewish culture, Muslim-Jewish society has all kinds of things that people do day-to-day. We eat, we, we work, we, we sleep, we do all sorts of things. It's more about this tell-it-like-it-is story rather than getting you know very erudite rabbis and Muslims together to discuss the very difficult points of view. It isn't that. It's about us on the streets, you know, what we know about. You're listening to Radio Salam Shalom. That song's absolutely amazing. I was just saying to Javid, I have to get that on CD. Ultimate chill-out tune, isn't it? Oh, we just imagine it. Radio Salam Shalom has been set up for two purposes, really. One is to stimulate dialogue between the Muslim and Jewish communities. And the other thing is that the voice of the moderate majority is heard. There are a lot of opportunities for more extreme views of Muslims and Jews to be heard in the media because that's what the media encourages. This is an opportunity for the moderate majority to have their say, to talk about their lives and their culture. One time we had the whole room on tenterhooks about the fact that in Jewish religion Isaac is sacrificed and in Islam it's Ishmael. There we were just talking about it and just actually saying, you know, what are you doing in this religion? What's this and what's that? And it's just getting it all open. (laughs) Today we are going to be talking about the relationship between Muslims and Jewish people. I particularly wanted to do the programme with Georgia because... On, I think, the first day I actually came in, I had a conversation with her. And I was like, wow, we have quite a bit in common, actually, and we get along, we have a laugh. It'd be really interesting to kind of do that on air so people can kind of say, well, hey, look, there's a Muslim girl and a Jewish girl, and they seem to be getting along really, really well. It's not... I think it's anonymous, actually. It just says a sister in Islam. But it's, quite it's a real experience. It's been an incredible journey and one that people have really wanted to be part of. I think the... Res- the worldwide response we've actually received kind of shows how 
Radio Salam Shalom has got global ramifications. Initially, I did kind of think, oh, no one's really going to listen. It's only going to be friends and family. But people seem to be taking on board what we're saying. And we've had so many emails saying it's such a great thing. And the fact that a, a group in Bristol have taken that first step hopefully would lead to other people joining us. is Radio Salam Shalom. So that was Peter Brill, chair of Radio Salam Shalom, and then the various presenters of the radio station. Abdul Rahman, Jeffrey, you're still with us. What did you make of that? Is that sort of thing you think that's hopeful, or is it is it a good idea that's never really going to take off? No, it's wonderful, and it's much more realistic. I'd much rather hear Hamza and Seth's take on intercommunal relationships rather than Melanie Phillips or... Osama bin Laden telling us how we're eternal enemies. That'd be a double enemies. act, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, it's a reality. They're both telling us that we're irreconcilable communities. We're we're doomed to be enemies, which I don't think is the truth at all. But if those if, if such radio stations are going to work, shouldn't they work and arise naturally from the community rather than sort of being given government money or being given handouts in some way? Because I can't, to be honest, it sounds like a nice idea, but I can't actually imagine my mom or my sister listening to a radio station specifically for two different communities. Many older generations would find difficulty simply because of language barriers and that's all and cultural uh, pressure, but but not because of uh, religious dogma. I think, uh, from my understanding of my community, there certainly isn't this thing uh, we're not allowed to listen to other people's takes on God or religion and stuff. So I, I think there's a lot more curiosity. Remember, we believe in a religion, and we're very curious as to why other people also believe in a religion. Now, there are some people who might say, well, you know, it's all very well, but it seems to be the Jews who are making all the effort here. You know, they're the ones that organise the event in, in North London. They're the ones who are sort of promoting this idea of Radio Salam Shalom. It's the Muslims who seem to be a bit more um, again, from my local experience, both communities are fairly willing to engage. I, I think the Muslim community, social and demographically, they've got a lot more primitive concerns on their plate, unemployment, uh, education, etc. But um, Quite a political answer you're giving there, aren't you? Well, uh, OK, what I'm saying is in reality, I think what you're saying is right, but I'm not sure that's because... We want it that way. Okay. well, if you've been listening to the radio Salam Shalom or if you have your own experience of different religions rubbing along together or maybe you think that such initiatives are a complete waste of time, get in touch via email at podcasts at guardian.co.uk or leave your comments on the Islamophonic blog page. Now, Radio Salam Shalom is one example of Jews and Muslims getting along. But how common is this kind of easygoing interaction? We all know Muslims, Christians and Jews share a history. But what kind of history is it? Now, the American author Zachary Carabell has just published a great new book called People of the Book, where he argues that the relationship between Islam and the West hasn't been one of only animosity, that in fact there have been long periods of peaceful living together. I spoke to Carabell and I asked him why people know much more about the conflicts and less about the cooperation between the three great religions. We've all fallen victim to collective forgetting of moments in the past, and there were many of them, of peaceful coexistence between Muslims, Christians, and Jews. There are actually some pretty banal reasons for that, which is that peace is simply less interesting to human beings than war. So give me some examples in history of Muslims, Christians, and Jews living in cooperation and in peace. Well, certainly, after the initial Muslim conquest in the 7th century, for centuries, Muslim empires ruled over largely Christian populations with significant Jewish minorities in many of the urban areas, whether it was in Alexandria or Baghdad or Muslim Spain. And contrary to popular impressions, there was no attempt at conversion or even forced conversion. And in fact, the early Arab conquerors were not that interested in people converting to Islam. They treated it much more as a 
a religion for the Arabs. So for long periods of time, you had a small Muslim elite ruling over a very large, largely Christian population, and coexisting with them in a, in a peaceable fashion. So where did the conflicts begin then? I mean, there has always been conflict. I'm not trying to say in this book that conflict isn't true. It's simply, if one were to read a history of the past 1,400 years and focus only on conflict, it would be like reading every other page of a book. Now, your book is being published in Britain under the title People of the Book, and the idea being that each of the three big religions have in some ways a sense of a respect and a tradition of, of, of a shared belief in a certain book. But what's quite interesting is I was at an um, evening event looking at the exploration of what Jews and Muslims have in common, and one of the people at the, on the panel said that the very fact that each religion has a set text which they believe to be absolute can also be the cause of acrimony and, and conflict as well. Yeah, clearly there is a, there's a competitiveness here in that Muslims, Christians and Jews each believe that they are the recipients of a particular revelation given by the God of Abraham to first the Jews and then through Jesus to the Christians and then finally to the Muslims via the Quran dictated to Muhammad. And if each of those believes that they're right, that's a recipe for a certain amount of uh, competition and maybe animosity, absolutely. But insofar as human beings do not always exist with each other with the framework of religion being the dominant one, and that, I think, is what people also overlook, that when Muslims fight Christians or when Muslims fight Jews historically, it doesn't mean that they are fighting because of their Islam or fighting because of their Christianity. Human beings are perfectly capable, as we know, of fighting each other for all sorts of reasons. And religion can be a useful tool or excuse, but it's not necessarily the sole motivating factor for human beings. And we're in a, we're in a period of time in our contemporary present today where we're much more disposed to view these things through the lens of religion, because there are people today who are claiming to fight in the name of religion. But that doesn't mean that that's why these things happened historically. So taking it away from history to the present day, where are the clues and the lessons for, for Jews, Muslims and Christians being able to live in peace today? Well, one is simply that Muslims, Christians and Jews are fully capable of living together without violence and conflict at the center of all their interactions. That was Zachary Carabal, the Abdul Rahman. That was quite an interesting interview, I thought. I mean, I, to be honest, I had no idea that there was this history of cooperation because all I'd ever heard about was the conflict. For most of my reading of history as well, it's been a very positive one. Um, I, the first interfaith uh, conference was in the 8th century in Andalusia. And when I look at the grandeurs or, or the greatest parts of Islamic history, it's one where there's been deep tolerance and respect for all other religions. So where's it all gone wrong then? Yeah, the past hundred years have uh, been one of upheaval. Um, I'm not sure the past hundred years is at all an accurate measure of how natural relations between Jews, Christians and Muslims are. But is it also about that the, the, the idea of Islam and the, and the sort of the arguments who, in terms of who's won the arguments about Islam right now have been hijacked by people with a particular take on, on, the, on history and on the present? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of dogmatism going around. I think it's because we've lost sight of uh, cultural roots. We've lost sight of historical realities of Islam and, and we're, we've stripped away a, a lot of that richness and, and, and just going towards a literalism where we reinterpret everything in the light of what we see as current conflict in the Middle East. And that's a very impoverished understanding. But it's also, I suppose, this question about in terms of how, does, how do communities live inside other countries and have 
you know, good co- community relations as well without necessarily believing that the country you live in has values that are absolutely completely against your own community. Brilliant point, because up until now, Muslims have been living in majority religion, majority Muslim countries where they've been tolerant. And now we're in a new phase in the last uh, 100 years where Muslim minorities exist in, in non-Muslim countries. And we have to reassess and reinterpret the, the understanding of a religion to give the same generosity and universalism that our faith had in the past to current situation where we're in a minority as well. Okay. Well, now that whole subject of communities trying to rub along together was also something being discussed at a conference I attended last week in Berlin, which was organised by the British Council in Germany. The conference was called Muslims in Europe, European Muslims, and its aim was to find out whether there were lessons that the British and the Germans could learn from each other about how to make integration work. Well, the first person I've bumped into this morning is Michael Bird, who is director of the British Council in Germany. Michael, give me an idea about why, why are all these people here? Um, sharing experience and perspectives, really. A lot of people in Germany think that they have a lot to gain from talking to British Muslims. I think there's a perception in Germany that we have been talking to each other and about the issues for longer than is the case in Germany. And I guess one of the questions is, you know, how to be successfully British and Muslim or how to be successfully German and Muslim. Yeah, on the face of it, we ought not to have any problem with the idea of multiple identities. There's no problem being A, Bavarian and and, and B, German. But there is a perceived problem in Germany about being German and Turkish. Actually, you're expected to make a choice. OK, we'll be interested to see how the day progresses. Welcome to uh, the British Embassy. So it's uh, lunchtime now and uh, we've just been to a session which was all about participation. And one of the people who was there was Ahmed LaRouz. Ahmed, you were on the panel and what was quite interesting is the whole panel discussion was all about how to get Muslims to participate more. Debate became about whether it's actually important to define yourself as Muslim or not. How did you think that went? I think that's a part of the problem we have in Europe is uh, defining the Muslim identity of the country where you live. And today, I'm really a little bit disappointed because the debate should talk more about making people more included in the system. And uh, we were talking more about definition, identities and terrorism and extremism. Tell me about that story that you mentioned on, on, on the panel when you were talking about how you never really want to go around talking about being a Muslim. You want to talk about yourself as an entrepreneur, but then it sort of changed somehow. I grew up in Morocco. When I came to Holland, I was 18, so I'm Moroccan. I was trying to, to, to find a way, all my life in Holland, 16 years now in Holland, I'm trying to find my way in the sense that I want to be Dutch. And I do that through entrepreneurship, because entrepreneurship uh, makes you feel very independent. And, and you your religion and your ethnicity doesn't matter? No, it's a, it's a tool. The session's over. We've had a couple of the conferences and things, and uh, we've just had our concluding thoughts. I thought I'd grab a few thoughts from people here to find out what they thought of it. So, uh, Haras Rafiq, you're from the Sufi Muslim Council. What did you make of it in a sentence? Uh, I thought the conference was topical. I thought it was encouraging that there was open and honest debate, and hopefully it's the basis of something that we can move forward on as a community. Okay, and Simon Kadri, you're from, what, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Did you, do you think these kind of things make any difference? Uh, I think they do, both in terms of providing clarity of concepts and ideas and also in terms of facilitating networks. And these were the two main objectives for the conference. 
It's uh, coming up to six o'clock. We spent the entire day listening to various sessions about participation and integration and diversity and uh, all the same buzzwords that uh, conferences often discuss. It's interesting. I'm not entirely sure whether anything gets achieved from it. But having said that, it was very interesting to have gone. And it was also interesting to get a comparing and contrasting the experiences of Britain with the Muslims here in Germany. Abdul Rahman, what was really interesting about going there was this sense that different countries have very much different experiences of how they treat their Muslim communities. And I have to be honest, when I got there, I thought to myself afterwards, you know, the Muslims in Britain are actually, they've got a pretty good example, actually, of cooperation and, and integration. Yeah, we've got a huge and a beautiful history of pragmatism in Britain. I, I, you know, I, I think we still have a lot more to do. As Muslims, we have to learn to appreciate more Britishness. And I think have a role in, in holding out their hands to Muslims. Please embrace a, a Muslim. And similarly, I think uh, Muslims also have a duty to tell people, look, we're not all terrorists. So I, I think those two grassroots phenomena need to occur. But I think we've got brilliant bases in England for that. Okay, that was uh, Abdul Rahman Jaffa. And if you don't want to necessarily embrace a Muslim, but you, if you just want to give us your thoughts about the podcast, you can uh, email us via podcast at guardian.co.uk or leave your comments on the Islamophonic blog page. Now that's all for this week. Riazet will be next week with what she's threatening is going to be a halal holiday special. But from me, Safraz Manzo and Francesca Panetta, who produced the programme, it's goodbye. Guardian Unlimited.